23 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in uh, Jeremiah chapters 43 through 45, Psalm 119 verses 89 through 96, and 1 Timothy 5 through 6-2. I just want to give a shout out to my beautiful wife, Jamie. Uh, <laughs> I was having a hard time finding an opportunity to record this because the kids were allowed today, and she took a bunch of them to the park. So um, kudos to you, sweetheart. Thank you for helping me today. Uh, she helps more than you can know. Uh, she's often very uh, disciplining me. Make sure you do your recording. Did you do your recording? Did you upload podcast? So she's kind of like the um, the secret wind behind my sails um, that uh, coming in a, a distant second from the Holy Spirit, of course. But uh, yeah, so thank you to my wife. Okay, so today in Jeremiah, we pick up where we left off yesterday, where Gedaliah, who had been left in charge of the land, uh, has been assassinated. And uh, he, as I noted yesterday, is portrayed as a very positive character, as are all the members of his family in the book of Jeremiah. And um, th this was basically an assassination. And those who remain now, the the people of Judah who, who have come from some of the neighboring territories and who are there anyway, as well as some of the military uh, forces that uh, were said to have been in the open field uh, during and after the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, they are now quite nervous uh, because uh, the Babylonians are going to hear for, hear of this. Not only was uh, Gedaliah assassinated, but so was the military garrison that was placed at Mitzpah. And so they're now nervous that Babel, what, what's going to happen when Babylon hears of this? Are, are they going to come and, uh, and, and, and destroy us all and crush us all? And uh, obviously that wouldn't take very much. So they go to Jeremiah, who is, had been placed under the care of Gedaliah, who is now dead, and ask, them, ask Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord. And he does, and God assures them of his protection if they stay in the land. But if they leave, uh, if they go uh, and follow through with their plan to go to Egypt, to flee to Egypt, um, then it would not go well for them there. And just as he has judged uh, Judah in the land of, of Judah, so he would judge them if they go to the land of Egypt. And uh, so Jeremiah finishes speaking that, uh, where we pick up today, and um, they all decide to listen to God. All right, happy happy ending. Oh, no, just kidding. They actually decide um, we're not going to listen uh, to the Lord. And these are guys that have so far, you know, you kind of look like the good guys, uh, some of these these commanders. Uh, but notably, Yohanan, the, the, the guy who had basically been the hero of yesterday uh, in rescuing the people from the clutches of Ishmael, whom he had taken captive and was bringing to Ammon, uh, as well as individuals who are called insolent men here, and uh, they don't believe Jeremiah. They say, you're telling us a lie. Uh, Yahweh did not send you to tell us this, um, but rather um, uh, Baruch, your scribe. Remember Baruch? He's the guy who was uh, had written down all the words of Jeremiah, and actually he's the one who brought it to the officials of the king to have it read uh, to King uh, Jehoiakim. And... Um, uh, so Baruch is apparently still around, and and why they're uh, why they're all um, uh, accusing him of 
planting this idea in Jeremiah's head. I'm not sure, but uh, they they try to blame it on him. So it's not the Lord. It was Baruch who sent you against us to deliver us into the hands of the Chaldeans. Okay, so you got you're just you're uh, something's fishy here, and we know we're going to die if we stay here. Now this is, I think, an interesting thing that maybe we might be tempted towards ourselves. You know where where you go to um, inquire of the Lord as you might inquire, you know, hopefully that's going to Scripture, hopefully that's seeking godly counsel, et cetera, et cetera. But you're not really inquiring, because you've got the thing that you're going to do either way, right? And so what you're actually looking for is someone to rubber stamp that for you. And, um, but, but um, you know, God does not always align with our intentions and our plans, and... Um, and you see this, you know, kind of this attitude on full display here. Like they just wanted some kind of sanction from a prophet to do what they had already set it in their minds to do. And they can't possibly understand um, that why God would not want them to go to Egypt. But in fact, he's challenging them the same way that he had been challenging his people all along, right? To, to trust him, to, to, to turn to him, to serve him, and he will take care of them. Um, he's been urging them to do this their whole history. He was certainly urging them to do this when uh, destruction was looming, right? And even when destruction was imminent and Jeremiah was going around saying, surrender to the Chaldeans, like that that sounded like crazy talk to them. Um, and now here he's saying, you know, the same thing. So essentially, like, has your ch- heart changed at all? Um, and, but they, they don't, uh, so they don't buy it. And um, uh, and they go and they go to the land of Egypt, uh, an undisclosed number. It seems like quite a few, and the initial place where they go is called Tapanhes. Um, this is in the East Delta, uh, so like you know that that northern part of Egypt where the del- the Nile kind of like splits in, into these branches. It kind of looks like the top of a tree um, or an upside down triangle. Uh, so they're in the, in the eastern part of that, roughly around like where like Goshen would have been and all that back in the days of the Exodus. And they've brought Jeremiah with them. Um, and whether that's by force or whether he's willfully going with them to continue to be a prophet to them, to continue to speak the Lord uh, Lord's word to them, it's, it's not clear, but Jeremiah is there. And sometime after they arrive there, he is told by the Lord to do another one of these prophetic enactments. And um, this time, it doesn't involve uh, burying his underwear. Um, Instead, he's to take two or several large stones and to hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace. Now, it's not um, entirely obvious what exactly he's being told to do here. First of all, the word mortar is ambiguous exactly what uh, what that is um, in the Hebrew. It's it's unclear, um, and the uh, the 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 word here or the expression here Pharaoh's palace. It simply is Beit Paro in Hebrew. So this is not where the capital is. So the actual palace of Pharaoh would not be there <clears throat> in Tapanes. Um, rather, this is probably just some kind of king's residence in this area. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's not as if they go to the, to the capital of Egypt and he starts burying rocks there. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and they, he's to do that in the sight of all the men of Judah and to say, behold, I will send and take, okay. So Neb- Neb- Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar will come of course, of his own free will thinking to do, to cause trouble and to do his Nebuchadnezzar stuff. 
but it is actually God sending and taking him. Notice the the way in which God is sovereignly working through the actions of this evil man, and uh, he, and he calls him his servant. Just he's and this is not the first time he's called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And last time he was calling him that back in twenty seven six. Actually, the only other time he calls him that in Jeremiah, um, he was sending him against Judah, and now. He, he's reminding him, Nebuchadnezzar is still my servant, and he will come and set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, um, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. So in this place, this place that belongs to the king of Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar will will be here, and he will set himself up just like, um, just like he set himself up in your land when he came to destroy it. He will come here as well, and uh, I am I am going to be um, giving over the land to pestilence and to captivity and to the sword. We get a little bit of a, uh, of a, um, uh, of a variation in the trifecta of judgment here. He says, I will kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt. He shall burn them and carry them away captive. Um, uh, that is the gods of Egypt. And, uh, he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. Uh, the verb there, um, is uh, ata. It actually means to uh, de-louse, to take, to remove, pick lice off. And of course, if you're a shepherd, um, you're probably pretty experienced with that. So it's um, it's like Egypt will be like a shepherd's garment, and it'll be like picking lice out of it. Interesting imagery there. And he shall go away in peace. So he's not going to be, you know, he's he's going to be so victorious that he 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 leaves calmly. Um, he's not like out, run out of Egypt or anything. He shall break the obelisks of Heliopolis. Uh, the Hebrew expression here is the matzebot. Uh, this is the same word as the standing stones, the pillars that, is, that were in Israel uh, that the Israelites were not to erect. And um, here, of course, this is, uh, this is referring to um, uh, these big obelisks that were set up in the city of Heliopolis in the um, in the temple of uh, Ray, the sun god, because here um, Heliopolis here in uh, it, the normal word in Hebrew is on o n, uh, but here it's actually Beit Shemesh, not to be confused with Beth Shemesh in the land of Israel, but which is house of the sun, of course the sun god being Ray. So the the matze boat of Beit Shemesh is the is the Hebrew there, um, and uh, we know archaeologically that the Temple of Ray there in Heliopolis had these two rows of these massive obelisks there, um, and um, yeah, and and uh, interestingly, uh, Nebuchadnezzar did indeed invade Egypt in uh, 567, 566 uh, BC, and so that appears to be. Um, the fulfillment of this prophecy, um, and uh, and then the word of Jeremiah uh, of the Lord comes through Jeremiah to the Judeans there, uh, and then it starts talking about a bunch of the cities that they ended up in, uh, some of which are identifiable, of course, Migdol. Uh, we think we know where that is. That's kind of uh, out in Sinai, um, uh, in Tapfanes, uh, Memphis. Pathros, which is um, the most obscure of all these places, it's apparently in Upper Egypt, um, which is um, actually the south. What's interesting thing about Egypt is you call the south Upper Egypt and you call the north Lower Egypt. 
So this is all the way down south. Um, and we know very, uh, very much because there's actually letters from them and there's all kinds of uh, artifacts and things that there's a significant Jewish community that takes up root there in the south uh, in, a, in a city called Elephantine. And um, so it's concerning all these Judeans who are now living in Egypt. Um, so you can imagine some, some time passes here um, in, in between chapters 43 and 44. You've seen all the disaster that I brought <clears throat> on Jerusalem. Uh, they're, they're a desolation. No one dwells in the cities of Judah. And we know why, because of the evil, because of serving other gods, even though I sent you prophets. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like standard stuff that Jeremiah, the way that Jeremiah runs through Israel's rebellious and idolatrous history. Uh, basically, I've destroyed you, but you have not repented. Okay, look at look at all that happened. My wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, and this still has not brought you to the place where you're ready to listen to me. Now thus says Yahweh, God of hosts, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves? You kind of expect him to say against me, which of course would be true, but they're they're doing um uh, they're hurting no one but themselves at this point. Why do you provoke me for uh provoke me to anger, offering, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt. So not only are they, did they not listen to him to go to Egypt in the first place, but now they're still engaging in the worship of other gods. Um, and um, you've, you've not humbled yourselves and you haven't walked in my law and my statutes that I set before your fathers. So like we're, ha this is the, this is how obstinate the human heart is, that even after experiencing God's judgment and uh, being fortunate to be left alive or to not be a, have been taken into exile, they're still, they're still recalcitrant. Um, th therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off Judah. I will take the remnant who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to, li to live, and all shall be consumed in the land of Egypt— they shall fall by sword and famine, and uh, and you know um, and and I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Verse thirteen: As I have as I have punished Jerusalem, so this judgment is following you there. Remember how he talks about like how the sword will follow them into the land of their enemies. This is an example of that, and not only the sword, but also it, well, this is Jeremiah. So famine and pestilence so that none of the remnant of Judah have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah except some fugitives. So there will be some left, but pretty much it's going to be a disaster for them. Uh, then we see basically a, a reflection um, here in, in the form of a, of, a, of a very succinct narrative of the two different interpretations of why all this disaster has befallen them, everything from the destruction of Jerusalem and the events leading up to it to where they are now. And, um, and we, we see that, um, that you have the Judeans who have come to Egypt um, and the men are fine with their wives making offerings to other gods. Okay. And, um, and, and they're like, um, as for the word that you have spoken to us, Jeremiah, in the name of Yahweh, we're not going to listen to you, um, but we're going to do everything we've vowed to these other gods, especially here, she's called the queen of heaven, 
which we saw back in chapter 7, verses 16 through 19. They were worshiping this deity in Jerusalem as well, um, and uh, doing the same stuff, baking cakes for her. And here we learn that, as I po pointed out then, that they, these are cakes that bear her image. Um, this is uh, the Queen of Heaven is almost certainly uh, the goddess who is known in Babylon as Ishtar, and uh, we've seen her plenty of times in the Old Testament. This is Astarte, or sometimes spelled Ashtoreth. Um, and they're, they're baking these cakes for her. They're pouring out drink offerings to her. So essentially like grain offerings and their libations. Um, and because, hey, and here's their interpretation of why this stuff has happened, right? We had plenty of food when we were doing that. Okay, we prospered. We saw no disaster. But then these reform movements started, you know, Josiah's reform and then like, you know, um, uh, maybe, you know, these other kind of like mini reforms. And uh, when that happened, um, we were consumed by sword and famine. But we already saw that the that a big part of the reason why that happened was because a lot of that those reform movements were just, it turns out, were just superficial in a lot of significant ways. So, you know, there's this... Uh, there's this idea that the only thing we need to do in order to be worshiping the Lord is to just make the right offerings to the right God. But that's not all that is involved in serving the Lord. It's also walking according to his statutes, his commandments. It's also doing justice to the orphan, uh, the fatherless, and the widow, and the sojourner, right? But, you know, we want to just be able to say, hey, we're going to live our lives however we want, and Sure, we'll make an offering to this God or to that God. Whichever God needs an offering, we're going to make that that God an offering, and that's the problem here. And so that's so they did that, and they did that that you know uh, half-hearted kind of repentance. Like we're sure we'll technically worship Yahweh, whatever, whatever. But then judgment was brought upon them because their repentance was not really true repentance. They didn't really reform their hearts. They didn't have circumcised hearts as the prophets say, right? Um, and and so what's the conclusion that they draw, okay? Because they don't truly repent and God brings judgment upon them. So they look at their superficial repentance. They see that they're still under the judgment of God. And they say, well, when we were making offerings to the queen of heaven, um, um, you know, uh, with our husband's approval, um, we didn't lack for anything. We had We had food and stuff. And now here we go, we've turned to the Lord, and, and since we've done that, it's been nothing but trouble. And then you get Jeremiah's interpretation of these events. He says to all the people who had given him this answer, as for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah um, and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials, did not Yahweh remember them? Did that not come to his mind? Yahweh could no longer bear your evil deeds and abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. So uh, essentially, you know, they the people think that their offerings to the queen of heaven and whatever other gods they were worshiping um, were what was saving them from judgment, whereas Jeremiah is telling them, no, that's actually why the judgment came upon you. Uh, it's because you made offerings and because you you sinned against Yahweh and did not obey his voice or walk in his law, in his statutes or his testimonies, that this disaster has happened to you. And so 
So those are the two options that the thing, the two narratives that the people can believe. And which one do they go with? Um, <clears throat> well, we will find out now. <laughs> Uh, Jeremiah says to the, to, especially to the, to the women, all the people and all the women, the women who are very engaged in this worship of the queen of heaven, hear the word of Yahweh. Um, uh, you and your, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, uh, saying we will surely perform the vows that we've made vows, not to the Lord, to the, to, but rather to the queen of heaven. Um, then confirm your vows, perform them, um, go ahead, have at it. Okay. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says Yahweh, that my name shall no more be invoked by any man of Judah in the land of Egypt. Right. So you're never going. You're no longer going to be saying as Yahweh, um, as Lord Yahweh lives, uh, but rather I am watching over them for dis- disaster and not for good. And remember that um, this is a key. Um, this is a key um, expression in Jeremiah. So the initial, his initial prophetic calling, part of that was, what do you see? An almond branch? And remember, I am watching over my word to perform it. And the verb there was shokade, okay, back in chapter 1, verse 12. And the thing there was that that sounds like the word for almond branch. And then when uh, there, you get a, this, we had this word of hope bound up with the new covenant promise where... He said that he, God said that he would he was watching over his people again and would sow the land with man and beast, right? He'd he'd plant them again in the land. And there we found that verb again, shokade. And now he's watching over them, but watching over them for disaster and not for good. Um, and all the men of Judah who are in the land, um, uh, will be consumed by the sword and famine until there is no end of them. And um, and uh, this shall be a sign to you, says Yahweh. I will punish you in this place in order that you may know that my words surely stand against you for harm. I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, just as I gave King Zedekiah, right, your last king, um, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who was his enemy and sought his life. And in the final words of um, the final verses of, of today, we have this short chapter, chapter 45, which actually rewinds the tape again. Remember, we said we've seen this a bunch of time in Jeremiah. He's all over the place in terms of time. I mean, Isaiah was like that a little bit, but Jeremiah is very much like that. And the word <clears throat> tells us uh, the word that he spoke to Baruch. Okay, Baruch, who has been um, maligned for some su- suspicious reason earlier on by the inhabitants of the land to Jeremiah, right? They accused Baruch of manipulating him. And um, this was back when he wrote the words of Jeremiah in a book at Jeremiah's dictation. So that's back in chapter 36, and back in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. Um, he says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, to you, Baruch, you who said, woe is me, for Yahweh has added sorrow to my pain. So he's kind of like Jeremiah in a sense, that he's he's um, in anguish over this task that God has given him to do. Um, and and uh, we get the sense here, actually, that in Baruch's case, it's kind of a little bit like complaining and not... And there, it, it's, uh, it's one thing to acknowledge the pain that you feel and maybe some misery that you feel and everything, but it's another 
to let that eclipse the the promises that God has made to you and make it as if there's uh, you you have no hope just because of your present circumstances, and um, and that appears to be where Baruch was at you know at this at this point in his life. And I feel like uh, you know we've all probably been there, but God sa- God commands Jeremiah to say to him, "Thus says Yahweh." Behold, what I have built, I'm breaking down. What I have planted, I'm plucking up. Those are, remember, from Jeremiah's commission also, back in chapter 1, verse 10. Um, That is the whole land. So you're feeling like this because I'm doing what I said I was going to do, and and it is not pleasant. And do you seek great things for yourself? So your whole people are going through this. What do you think? You think you're going to have a vacation right now, Baruch? Um, seek Seek them not. Don't seek great things for yourself right now. Behold, I'm bringing disaster upon all flesh. But remember, I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places that you may go. So I will preserve you. You will. You are going to be okay. And this is uh, this 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 uh, declaration by God to make certain individuals who have acted favorably towards Jeremiah and towards the Lord. Um, to make them uh, their life as a prize for war in Hebrew, a shalal. Um, you know this. He said about the, this about those who would go out and surrender to the king of Babylon in twenty one nine and in thirty eight two. And then this was also said to Eved Melech, who was the eunuch serving in the court of Zedekiah in thirty nine eighteen. He's the one who rescued Jeremiah from the pit. Remember, he put the uh, cushions on or the, the 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 rags under the ropes to help pull him out of the cistern. Um, so, you know, Baruch is assured that by the Lord that he will take care of him, so don't despair. All right, let's go now to Psalm 119.89 through 96. Um, here we have a lot of emphasis, at least initially, on the enduring and eternal nature of God and his word. This uh, stanza, begin, all the lines begin with the Hebrew rough equivalent of El, which is Lamed. Forever, O Yahweh, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, okay? So this is how permanent God's word is. Um, Of course, there's other passages of scripture that speak like this, right? That um, all flesh is like grass and its beauty like the flower of the grass, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Um, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. And I kind of love that about God's word, is that when we start to try to wrap our arms around it to understand it and then to build our life around it, we're building our lives around this thing that is that is so much bigger than us, the word of God, the truth of God expressed in, in, in human words. It is this enduring source of life for, for any generation um, of those who come to him. And uh, it is something we pass down, and it is something that we, um, that we all feed from, God's people from the very beginning. And uh, by your appointment, they, they stand this day. Uh, for all things are your servants. So the uh, it says he esta- he established the earth; it stands fast, and and uh, the things that you have endured, both the heavens, verse eighty nine, and the the earth, verse ninety, they still stand because you're the one who's upholding them in your sovereign power, God. For and I love that all things are your servants. I, I think that that's an interesting statement of God's sovereignty, right? That they that um that God is control in control of all things to the extent where not only Nebuchadnezzar was a servant, but really all things are. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So the psalmist 
you know, we typically think of Psalm 119 as this psalm that's totally about the Word of God, and that it is, but a, um, a big part of it is, uh, is, is how it sustains the, the, God, the, the speaker, the godly person, the righteous person, uh, in the, through their affliction. And so he's talked about his affliction in, in verse 50, in verse 67, in verses 71 through 75, and here again. And the, the, what was the deciding factor in his affliction? That he had delighted in the law of God. And so when we have affliction— Right, like it, that is the time to draw close to God. It's not the time to draw away, stop reading our Bibles, stop thinking about the things of God. It's actually the time to practice making them uh, those things our delight. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. I belong to you, Yahweh. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but. What do I do about that? Am I trying to get back at them? Am I trying to, you know, uh, scheme against them? No, I consider your testimonies. I look to you to see what you want me to do, how you want me to react. I have seen a limit to all perfections, right? Anything that is uh, that is excellent in this world, they all have their limits, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So think of that as like spatial, right? Like a limit, a boundary on an area, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's the imagery there. First uh, Timothy five six through two. Okay, so uh, Paul is here continuing to give instructions to Timothy. And remember, yesterday he talked about not letting anyone despise him for his youth, but rather set an example for them in his godliness. Um, and here. Um, still speaking of Timothy as a guy who maybe isn't like, you know, ultra young, but is young compared to people he's called to minister to, which can be a tricky thing, right? Like here are people who are way more experienced in life than you. Um, maybe some who are more godly than you. That's an interesting dynamic as a pastor or as a, any kind of shepherd, right? When you realize that there are people under your spiritual care, maybe who, who walk a lot more closely with Jesus than you do and have been doing it for a longer time, right? And yet you still are the shepherd there. And so he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So treat him if treat him as, as if he's your father whom you are looking to encourage. That's how you should look towards those who are older than you. Um, younger men, you should treat as you would treat your brothers. And older women, you should treat as you would treat your mother's and of course, the, keep in mind like the idea of honoring one fa one's father and mother, and and, um, and younger women as sisters in all purity. And purity in the New Testament is often associated with sexual purity, and I wonder if that has uh, something of that flavor there, right? That um, rather than being attracted maybe to some of the younger women, um, think of them as your sister. And it's great to cultivate. I, I don't know how many people this will speak to, uh, but you know, maybe definitely the guys um, listening. Is that like that's that's a dynamic of doing ministry, right? That you might uh, um, that that temptation is always before us, and we don't do anybody a service by denying that that's the case. But a tremendous way to really um, to really guard yourself against that is to think of. Of, of of women whom you minister to as sisters and to really cultivate that image in your mind. 
to the point where like the even the prospect of having an impure thought about them kind of makes you sick. Like it would make you sick to think about your sister that way. Um, and um, and that there's there's like a a repulsion, not that they're repulsive, but that but that uh, uh, to, to to having that kind of thought in your mind um, that you find that actually. Uh, repulsive because you're viewing them as as sisters. And this is kind of like I, I think of this often with regard to battling temptation. So much of the war with temptation is not done in the moment of temptation, but it's in preparation for that. And so just preparing yourself by getting used to thinking that way about women um, and about younger ladies, um, I think has has served me very well, has very very been very helpful to me. Um do I do I view them as sisters? Um, okay, I spoke about that longer than I wanted to, but I think that's a I don't know. I, I found that a helpful word. I hope it's helpful to you. And then then he starts to talk about, um, and I think it's important to understand where he's going, like what he's saying in this section. Uh, what appears to be kind of like a way in which the Pauline churches are set up. Um, to take care of people who can't really care for themselves, who are in some kind of socially vulnerable situation. Uh, we've seen like maybe like the um, the 1.0 version of this in the book of Acts, remember where everybody's like selling stuff that they own and some are even selling property and, um, and, and kind of pooling their resources. And um, that spirit continues now, right? Where um, if you're a part of the church, you shouldn't have to like, go hungry. Okay. You shouldn't have to not have your needs met. And maybe a lot of churches need to really take this kind of pattern of New Testament churches more seriously that way, that there should be a care for one another's needs. But of course it is a balance. And we've seen that also in some of the things that Paul has already said, like where he talks about like idle people who don't work. And as a result, if they're not willing to work, they shouldn't be willing to eat. Right, but rather they should labor hard with their their hands, and um, so so the the idea that the church does care for people, but like the, you have you have to be careful, you have to have parameters put in place that the church is not drained and destroyed by people who are maybe who should be pulling more than they actually are, like who have the legitimate ability whether to work and for some reason choose not to, okay. And the way that that manifests itself in this context in First Timothy is that there is apparently a program, um, a, a very purposeful program for taking care of widows, and it's no um, wonder why they're they are um, they are vulnerable. And uh, it's interesting here. Notice the wording: honor widows who are truly widows. The Greek there is literally widows. Um, the ones who are widows, something like that. Uh, cheros tas antos cheros. Um, and, uh, and it almost seems to me as if the, the category um, who, who are widows is almost like a, an idiomatic expression for what this group of people um, or this, 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 perhaps we could say this need meeting program in the church um, is called. Um, so you've got this thing where a widow, someone who's not able to take care of themselves because their husband has died, um, and um, uh, if they if they meet certain qualifications, the church will take care of them. And uh, and the first qualification for a widow, someone whose husband has died, 
being included in this category of quote unquote, who are widows, um, is, uh, that they have, that they, um, that they have no other family to take care of them, at least believers. Okay. So if the widow has children or grandchildren, then those children, grandchildren have a responsibility to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Okay. That's pretty obvious, right? But again, like, so if you've got this pool to take care of those who are widows, then, um, uh, you don't need to be doing that though. If there's other people who have a familial obligation under God's law to provide for those in their household. So think of like honor your father and mother. Um, so you've got believers who should be taking care of them. That's, that's, um, so, so they would not typically be enrolled in this program, um, but rather focus on the members of her household taking care of her. She who is truly a widow, there you have the expression again, truly a widow. And again, I say like that seems to be maybe the name for this arrangement, this program that Paul's talking about, uh, left all alone, okay? She has no one in her family, um, has set her hope in God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Now, this is interesting, and I'm not 100% sure of this interpretation, but I, I think this is what's going on. Um, that these quote unquote truly widows, okay, are um, they are receiving help from the church, from the body of believers, um, but something is expected back from them. There is something that they should be doing. And remember Paul's perspective on singleness, right? That a single person is able to divide themselves uh, is able to devote themselves undividedly to Christ, undividedly to the Lord and to the care of the church. Now, they might not have a lot of money. They might not have, uh, um, you know, other resources, um, but they are single and they are able to give to the church through prayer, right? And I like that, that, that their, their devotion towards supplication and prayer is actually, like, that's what they need to be doing. And if they're doing that, then they are considered in this category of truly widows. So it's not just that they have a need, and so it's supplied by the church, but something is asked back from them, and that is to be devoted to prayers night and day. That doesn't mean, like, you know, Paul, the pastor visits, oh, you're not, yeah, you, you weren't praying all day long and all night long. Like, I don't think it's, like, that extreme. But something is, that there is a... Um, a spirit, a true contribution. And I like there that if that's the case, if I'm right about this, that, that, that prayer is viewed here as almost like a tangible currency of a valuable, a thing that is truly valuable, a thing that it's actually worth supporting these women so that they can devote themselves to, because rather than looking to get married again, and then having another family, well, they've got the time on their hands. They've got the availability. They're able to give their attention to their uh, brothers and sisters and uh, and younger people in Christ and to devote themselves to prayer on their behalf. Uh, the contrast this to she who is, is self-indulgent, um, she's, she's dead even while she lives. Okay, so she's not pulling her own weight. Rather, she's just looking for for, for money. She's looking for a handout from the church without really being part of the community of God's people. 
um, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. These widows, right, have to be without reproach as well, just like overseers do. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So again, going back to the idea that if they have children, the chil- and the children are believers, the children have an obligation. That is not. This does not sound that Paul sound like Paul is saying it's ob- it's um, optional either, right? Worse than an unbeliever if you don't care for your own family, um, and. Uh, I, I, I just want to say too, this do, I don't think this means that they're never going to help out someone unless they're if they're not willing to like join into this uh, truly widows program. Um, it's just that like with regard to this program in specific, let me remind you how this works. Uh, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than sixty years of age. Okay, so she has to be over sixty. Having been the wife of one husband, so she's shown herself to be faithful through to her husband throughout life. Remember, this is actually the opposite of the one one woman man that we saw for elders, right? This is a one man woman. It's a, the the same expression in Greek, and having a reputation for good works. Okay, so these are these are gems. So these ladies are gems. <laughs> um, if she has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints. Notice that. That is kind of interesting. Wash the feet. Now, that could be just a general term for service, um, but it's interesting that Paul uses that expression, suggesting that Jesus' example is, is followed in the early church, and not just the symbolic gesture of foot washing, but that's what service is called. Um, that, that serving brothers and sisters is referred to as washing their feet. Um, that, you know, kind of the enduring legacy and the knowledge of what Jesus had done. And if that's the case, if this is taken from the language of what Jesus did, that's interesting because, um, and might have something to say towards the whole dating of the writing of the Gospels issues, right? Because Paul knows about this in uh, the early 60s. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that John is written in the early 60s, but it is an, it's an interesting thing to consider. So taking Jesus' example in serving the saints, which is metaphorically described here as washing their feet, um, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. So again, these are not—it's not just like anyone. It's a woman who has a proven track record. Uh, It's almost like a form of church employment in a sense. But refuse to enroll younger widows— for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. I think what this is saying is that if uh, it's talking about younger women who enroll, who agree to do this, who perhaps take some kind of formal vow to God, and then meet the next man of their dreams and forsake that, uh, forsake their commitment to the Lord to do this. I think that's what he means by that. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Paul is kind of here, I think, speaking from experience. He's seen this happen to younger women who are enrolled, widows for some unfortunate reason, and who are enrolled in this program, that they don't take it as seriously as the older women tend to. Um, so I would have younger women, widows, you want to know how to care for their needs, I would encourage them to remarry to bear children, to marriage, manage their households, 
and to give no adversary to uh, to um, the adversary no occasion for slander. Notice here the way he envisions the woman's life. And again, this is I don't think that this necessarily means like all cultures everywhere, like a, a um, you know like a woman can't get a job or something like that. But uh, but in, in this, I think that this does shed light on that thing that Paul said back in two fifteen where he says that a woman will be saved through childbearing. And there I argued that that was a uh, synecdoche for general, like the general things that God calls women in that day and age to do, and even many in our day and age, but, you know, the the caring for a home um, and particularly caring for the children and raising them up to be godly. By caring for the home, I don't mean like she's a cleaning machine or something, but she's doing the things that actually count. Um yeah, I think, uh, and I think you see some of that that here. That that's like the life that that in general God has called the women to. Not to say that there's no exceptions. Not to say that there's anything biblically wrong when a woman for some reason can't do that. Make maybe the house needs two incomes or something. And shame on churches who who portray it as if that is required of families, um, uh, families who are maybe struggling, but the woman can't go out because it's the man's role to do that. That seems like uh, palpable nonsense, frankly, because there are plenty of places in the scripture in which godly women, godly married women, um, are doing, uh, are, are not living that, that lifestyle. So, you know, but, but we are talking in generalities. We are talking in general patterns. And I think as with everything, uh, or as with, let's say many things, a balance is required in how we view uh, people's one another's roles. And so, um, and he warns that, you know, women who kind of like depart from this, who have, who have, who have not taken this role seriously have become idle or, um, gossips or, or busy bodies that, uh, some of them have gone so far here as to stray after Satan. And then he says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Okay, so so uh, a, this is kind of attached on to this. Speaking of caring for people in the church, um, women should be attentive to other wid- widows in their family um, and let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And there's kind of the principle of, of all these uh, kind of ins and outs of this truly widow program, right, that you, uh, you don't want to overburden the church so that it can actually do a good job for those whom it is called to um, to care for in this way. Then he talks a little bit about elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Okay, so these are, these are um, the leaders of the church who do a good job, and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, which of course implies that there are some elders who do not teach, although all are to be able to teach some labor in preaching and teaching more than others. And those, uh, according to what Paul says here, are worthy of double honor. Um, uh, But of course, maybe some other elders are also worthy of uh, double honor. Look, pay attention to the wording here. It's especially those who do this. Um, And... um, and honor probably on on a similar topic to the church uh, financially or um, materially taking care of people within the body. I think here he's applying that to the elders, which is why he is he says uh, he quotes this passage that he also quoted in First Corinthians nine nine. For the Scripture says, 
you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Now there, as I explained back then, he used he actually used that verse, which is from Deuteronomy 25.4, to illustrate the, a very similar point, right? That, that um, people who lead churches and kind of like do that and, and maybe don't work otherwise because they're doing this full-time deserve the support of the churches. And the illustration here is that um, uh, the the um, when you're having the ox do work for you, um, you shouldn't pre- prevent it from eating its share, right? You shouldn't be muzzling it. That's cruel. He's doing this work for you. Um, feed him. Let he you know he should be. He's worthy of his wages, which is interesting, by the way, because that's exactly what he pairs this with. Now notice here. So number one, I think this is a. A, uh, a great example of the way that Paul uses the law, okay, the law of God relevant for the life of the believer, that its principles teach us what God thinks about things. So it's by no means irrelevant, uh, a relic of the past or something, but has a lot of relevance, um, provided we are legitimately imply, uh, applying the principles that it teaches. Uh, but this is actually a very, very helpful verse for understanding, for forming, I think, a good doctrine of Scripture. Because notice this, he says, for the Scripture says, okay, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, and then he quotes another Scripture, the laborer deserves his wages. Notice that. The Scripture says, then you get Deuteronomy, and then you get the laborer deserves his wages. But that is not taken from the Old Testament. That's a quote of Jesus, okay? Um, and this is when he's sending out the 12 and, you know, actually he's teaching something very similar here. And um, it occurs in Matthew 10.10, 10, and it also occurs in Luke 10.7. And the wording here is actually um, is actually mirrors Luke pretty much exactly. Matthew is close, um, but the difference being that uh, the word for wages in Matthew, he uses the word trophé, whereas Luke translates Jesus's words with the word misthos, which is what Paul uses here. And he doesn't appear to be referring to an oral saying that people just in the church like just knew, right? Because he calls it scripture, okay? Um, he seems to be pairing these things together both as scripture. So he's, Paul is aware of, of, not only is Paul aware of, well, I mean, of a saying of Jesus, okay, but he seems to be—he's aware of it in the form that we have in the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke is a close companion with Paul, and I think you—I don't know if it's certain, but you can make a decent case here that Paul has in mind what Luke specifically has written in his Gospel. And if that's the case, this is very interesting because he is calling that Scripture also— and quoting it alongside of Deuteronomy, and it shows the high regard that Paul has for the Gospels. Now, of course, we think of it as Scripture too, um, but it's just a good kind of a confirmation of that, that Paul is 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 thinking along those lines, even this early on in the history of the Church. Uh, do not admit a charge of uh, against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here, this is the standard of Deuteronomy 19.15, that it is very serious when an elder of the church is caught in some kind of sin, but you have to be very certain of it. And, um, and, and like, so like, what is your proof that he has done this? Is it just one person saying it, or do we have 
are we are we meeting a, a reasonably high evidential bar given its repercussions? But and those elders who persist in sin, okay, so maybe they've been confronted about it and and they and they stop. Um, but if they persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. And note that this is it is only elders whom the New Testament says explicitly to do this with. That that because of their high role, they are actually uh, it, their rebuke is to be visible to the entire church, so that the rest may stand in fear. So as the leaders have this increased responsibility, so their accountability and the consequences for their sin is greater. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of, hand, on of hands. Be careful. Don't be too quick to, to move people into this position, the positions of leadership in the church, right? Don't take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. We saw that at the end of chapter 4 as well. And then he, I like how he inserts a word for Paul's stomach problem, or Timothy's stomach problems. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. And then he points out the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, right? Some people, it's more obvious when they sin, um, you know, um, as opposed to people who maybe are more in their thoughts with their sin, but the sins of others appear later. And then so he says, but the, the actual point of him saying this is, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden, right? Because he's telling Timothy to do stuff like make his progress known to all. So just like you, some people's sins are obvious, people's good works should be made obvious to others. Others should, uh, not for the sake of pride, right? Don't do good works in order to be seen by others, but in the sense of let your light shine before others that they might give glory to, to your Father who is in heaven. And finally, we have a word to bond servants, which we've seen before, right, that they are to honor their masters, even in difficult situations. This is Paul's general attitude towards authority, such as we see in Romans 13 and some of the other slave passages, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, because there even you are witnesses to your masters. A slave can be a witness to Jesus of his master. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. So don't say, oh, you're a fellow Christian, you know, I don't, I don't have to listen to you or I don't have to, right? Like, no, don't take advantage of that fact. And they should be treating you well, but, right, but don't take advantage of the fact that they're brothers. Rather, you must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. There should be a love, beloved, right? There should be a love relationship between the servant and his master if both are a Christian. Um, okay, that's it for today. Sorry for a little bit of a longer episode, but as always, I thank you for being with me, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading Scripture, take care, and bye-bye.